Father, uh, we pray that as we, um, uh, as we work with ideas and insights and observations and as we uh, seek to apply them to living faithfully in the circumstances uh, in which you have us, please give us uh, creativity and courage and prudence and wisdom uh, at the right measure and in the right places. For Jesus' sake. All right, well, the, the project, as I think about it today in this session and in the session this afternoon, is, to, is an exercise in what Greg Sheridan, the journalist from The Australian, uh, talks about as situational uh, awareness. And situational awareness is an idea that comes from the military, and, uh, and in the military, um, for a successful operation, uh, a successful military operation, you need the right stuff, but you need to send the right people onto the field, they need the right equipment, and they need... Uh, the right training, they need the right resourcing, uh, but they also need situational awareness. They need to be able to understand the terrain in which they're operating, uh, the the people with whom they're engaged, and uh, and the situation situation that, that they're in. And the way I think about what we're doing today, and especially uh, this morning, is an exercise in in situational awareness uh, to develop a greater awareness of the time and place and moment that we're in um, to understand some of its contours and some of its uh, shaping power and to have a greater awareness and perhaps a greater self-awareness of the way our moment and our place both forms and deforms us as we seek to be conformed um, to the image of, of God's, uh, God's Son. So that's what I'm really hoping today, that we'll come out with a greater self-awareness, a greater insight into how we're being both formed and deformed, and the, the way that our moment uh, pushes in on us, and then, and then some ways of resisting that, and, uh, and pushing back in a Jesus-shaped Jesus way. And so I've called the stuff a work, research and witness in a secular age, and there's an assumption smuggled into that, which I think we'll be able to defend over the course of the day, uh, and the assumption is that the moment and the age that is both forming and deforming and informing uh, the way we live for the Lord Jesus uh, could properly be called a secular age. Um, that the, the label secular is, is true and true in particular ways of the moment that we live and not true uh, for lots of history and for lots of people uh, today, but true particularly for us in our Western context. Um, by secular, or calling it a secular age, what I mean is that we live in a context where vast, vast sways of life are and can be lived and are lived without any reference to transcendent uh, reality. So we live in a context, and it's like talking to fish about water. It's, you know, um, it's not something that we notice as we live and move and have our being here, but it is remarkable that we live in a context in which most of our work and rest and our activities happen in the context where transcendent realities aren't named or invoked or referred to or seen as needed uh, to do what we go about doing with our lives. Huge tracts of social real estate have been marked out as spaces in which the God question need not distract us and which life can be done without reference um, to God or any transcendent reality. And therefore, I think, uh, we live in a context where to believe in God and to believe in transcendent uh, realities is or can feel like the harder option. 
is or can feel like the more fragile option, uh, is or can feel like uh, the thing that you've opted into, the choice that you have made, subsequent to a whole lot of stuff that is taken for granted, you've attached to that this other thing, which you or I are also someone who believes in God, uh, but we do so in the awareness um, that that is not the only alternative on the table. That there are people who do not believe in God and who, in spite of not believing in God, aren't an immediate threat to us. So that you get onto the bus and you're not terrified at the thought that according to the, um, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, about, about 40% of that bus doesn't um, uh, have any reference to the Christian faith and probably only about 15% of the people on that bus um, go to church at all. And you don't think, I'm going to get killed. Or uh, what is the ethical framework that these people operate on and what's stopping them from attacking me at this moment? Um, you're aware that lives can be lived with some sort of coherence uh, without reference to God or transcendent um, reality. And so we're thinking about our age as a secular age and uh, we want to ask the question... Uh, what does that mean? How does it form and deform us? I want to ask the question, what is it like? That's that more subjective question. What does it feel like to live and, and move and have our being and to live for Jesus in a secular uh, age? And, uh, and to start, start to think of our secular age as, as not like, like what water is to fish, but as a contingent circumstance that's come about through a particular historical and cultural uh, moment that could have been otherwise. Um, so that's where I want to get, especially uh, this morning. And I do want to kind of crowdsource this. So this is going to be like an exercise that you actually physically stand up for and, uh, and do something with. I wanted to start in this session to try to tell the story of how we got to where we are and to think about uh, the alternative versions of how we got to where we are. And I want to do that historically. Um, so what I'm going to do is I've literally got post-it notes and what I want to do is have um, 1999, I'm going to do it right before your very eyes. I'm going to have 2019, that's the, our moment tonight, um, on one side of the wall. So this is 2019. The other one is 30 AD, death of Jesus. And what I want you to do is take post-it notes and imagine that the whole... How do we do this? Um, let's start that way. So that's 2019, and here's 30 AD. And the rest of the room represents the uh, entire history of the world from 30 AD to 2019. I might put a marker there, so that would be... Um, this week, 1500. Anyway, well, I'll work it out. I'll space it out. And what I want you to do is take a post-it note and put two or three things down there that you think are significant in shaping the moment that we now find ourselves in. Does that make sense? Taking the assumption that our moment now is kind of a secular age, that uh, we live in a secular moment. Uh, what are the big contributors to that moment? Uh, people, wars, technologies, books, uh, uh, moments that have shaped our moment. Does that make sense? Cool. Everyone get some of these and away you go. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Hey, here you go. All right, let's... Um,
Let's take some time. Take some time to reflect on that. So, any uh, first of all, you might have questions. There might be people that put stuff up there that you wanted to know what what it was or uh, how it got a Guernsey. And um, so, feel free to anything you spotted that you want to say. Oh, what, what, how does that fit in? Or Oh yeah, so who wants to speak about the Bloomsbury set? Well, I put it up there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They, uh, I think they have, uh, like they're infamous, Mm -hmm. they wrote a lot of literature, which is still uh, uh, studied and valued today. Yes. And they, I guess, were the most obvious source of a lot of change in uh, Anglo world morals and thinking about how life should be lived. Yes. Yeah. That's my total understanding. Yeah. <laughs> so they're all they're associated with Cambridge University. So you had Cambridge and London, and the place that they mostly lived in London was in Bloomsbury, which, if you know, London is just near uh, King's Cross and Pancras Station, which is quite near where, if you go, you can see the um, Harry Potter. Uh, trolley going into the wall there. So just walking distance from that is Bloomsbury, where some of the university, like university college and stuff is. And so the people included in the Bloomsbury set were people like Virginia Woolf, Ian Foster, um, Bertrand Russell, uh, the Keynes, yeah. Um, yeah, Lyndon Strachey. Yeah, Lyndon Strachey. And, um, and they had all these hangers on and so on. And um, so they were mainly, yeah, mainly Cambridge and London, and yeah, it's it really interesting if you read them. So I mean, famously, so Ian Forster says, uh, has this famous quote where he, says, he wrote *Howard's End* and um, those, those sorts of books, and he says, "If I had to choose between dying for my friends and dying for my country, I hope I would have the courage to die for my friends," which brilliantly captures that. Uh, that immediately post World War One, because World War One happens and uh, it's for king and country and, and pushed by a sense of duty, and then it's this, this absolutely traumatic and disastrous uh, war. And that turn toward personal relationships, personalism, subjective, uh, an, an emotional account of ethics. So, you to say something is good is essentially to say. So say something is good is not to say that it confirms toward it, it conforms to its purpose and goal or purpose and goal same thing. But to, it's to say hooray for that. Something is good means hooray for that. And then ethical work is to tell other people that they should also say hooray for that. Um, and if you read the Bloomsbury Group, the way they conducted sexual ethics is remarkable in how remarkable it was then and how unremarkable it was now is now. So they kind of all slept with each other and it was kind of gender was fluid and. Um, all that kind of thing, and so uh, they were. That that was that group. So they kind of turned the century up to the um, up to the Second World War. Yeah. Uh, any other ones you wanted to just ask about on clarification read grounds? Just uh, why is there anything on this side of the room during the Dark Ages? Nothing <laughs> <laughs> happened. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Well, I mean, and that's true. We all know historically that nothing happened then. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So, what do you want to have? Some macro observations about the uh, about little um, nodes of activity versus long, slow periods. Yes, Patrick. Um, I think the 
this used to be what we were taught in history at school, so we know stuff about that a bit. Yes. This is our recent experience. And all of this we really have no idea about. Yeah, okay, so it could reflect, it could be a very sophisticated room that has just intensely started studying the Dark Ages and discovered that nothing of significance is there. Or it could reflect our actual, <laughs> like the joke about, um, there's a joke said against economists, but it's that um, you know, they're looking, someone's dropped their keys and someone else comes and finds it was night time and they're looking under where the light is. And they say, oh, have you found your keys? And I was still looking for them. He said, where did you drop them? And they said, oh, over there. And he said, well, why are you looking over here? He said, because the light's here. See? <laughs> <laughs> um, other, other nodes of interest or... Um, so there's an uneven thing, which may reflect education, may reflect conviction. Um, it's a bit Western-oriented. Yes, yep. So it's all... Um, uh, it all has to do with the history of, of the West, more or less. Um, someone mentioned the, the splitting off of the, the Western and the Eastern Catholic churches. Uh, well, the... Uh, is that right? Excuse me. Yeah. Um, yep, good. Yeah, that's a fair question. Any things you want to ask questions about? Like, do you want to ask someone else, like, uh, why, why they thought their thing was significant or um, uh, make observations about um, the kinds of things that are up there? Yeah. I do want to ask about the Vesuvius. I'm not entirely sure. I, I know I know what happened, but I'm not sure why it's significant. Okay, so why? Yeah. How did Vesuvius? Did you sit in the HSC? Does anyone like? Let me just say, well, you don't have to declare. If you put something up there in the understanding that what you said was confidential, don't feel like. You have to. <laughs> but we can wait all day. So who put it up there? <laughs> <laughs> Literally the only date that far back that I knew off by heart. <laughs> 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 to try and make it relevant, it does show that we do have good, robust history going that far back in yep. history. Yeah. Excellent. Cool. Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any other observations, questions? Yes. We're talking about this side being blank and. Yes. So in, as people try to make an account of, of this, you have um, typically, you can divide it up into, uh, into the long, slow, uh, long, uh, long and slow versus short and sharp, and top down versus bottom up. So you can think, uh, some explanations really uh, think about a long, slow decline, and often Duns Scotus, 
uh, or William of Ockham or whatever, you had people there who, so Pope Benedict, for example, uh, had, a, had a strong sense that there, were, there was stuff that was put in the stream of Western culture in that age that had a slow, uh, slow burn right through to this moment. Um, you have people who, who tend to think, and that's, that, that would be an example, that what happens in the world is that ideas change reality, that people have ideas and then eventually those ideas find their way down into the system. And you have other people who say, actually, that's not how the world works. It's much more um, bottom-up. So you'd have something like the printing press and things like technology or contraception uh, or, or um, uh, the, you know, the Protestant Reformation or these things that are more bottom-up uh, less ideas driven, maybe not the reflection sort of an example, um, but things where technology changes. And you'd have people who would say uh, the last 500 years that this is about right, that that's really what you want to be speaking about when you ask the question of secularisation. But there are some people, so Callum Brown, uh, for example, uh, who argue actually secularisation is this really short, sharp thing that happens in the 60s and it's sudden and precipitous and uh, and and almost overnight, as opposed to other people. I think it would be most people that there is something happening really in that kind of 500-year uh, period that mostly accounts for where, where we are now. Yeah. Any other things you want to do to capture that before we jump back into the... All right, we jump back in. Um, what I wanted uh, to do to throw out there is I want to say that there, I think there is a common-sense story um, that we uh, in the West have in our minds, that people uh, have in their minds a story about how we got to this moment, and that story is hugely shaping uh, of the way we and our culture thinks about God and, uh, and claims to transcendent in our, in our moment. And I use the word story advisedly, because I do think, I'm sure this is uncontroversial, that we are story-generating creatures. We tend to not... Uh, think at least day-to-day levels in Excel spreadsheets, although perhaps this is the wrong room to say that they, um, uh, we tend to think in stories, and stories are how we make sense of, of the world, and it's how we get leverage in the world, is how things are believed and treasured and so on. I think you see this, the power of stories, you see this in the, uh, the Trump campaign. Um, you think about what was the slogan for the Trump campaign? <coughs> yeah, make America great again. Now, think about that. If, it, if the slogan was just make America great, how would that go as a slogan? Do you think, you, make America great, to me, right, it's pedestrian, yeah, it might be fake, pedestrian, boring, make America great, what, how is that? I don't know, whatever. Like, I just it wouldn't catch any attention at all. You say, make America great again, and suddenly you're telling a story. And the whole sentence comes alive because make America great again. Suddenly, it's a story about America was once great, but then there's been a fall and something has happened that's dislodged us from our moment. And now a hero or a villain, someone has emerged uh, who can bring us back to the thing that we once had. I think the difference between that one word, make America great, and make America great again is huge. It's the difference between information and storytelling. Uh, that if, it, if you say his plan is to make America great, who cares, plan is to make America great again, suddenly you're enveloped in a whole story. And so what I want, want to say is that I think we have a story that we hold in our minds for how we got to our, um, our secular uh, moment and how we um, uh, lost God and religion. And I think it goes something a little bit like this. That once upon, the ti- once upon a time, uh, everyone in the West believed in God. 
Once upon a time, the whole situation was just wall-to-wall religion. Uh, the church took responsibility for all the major institutions of society, and everything that happened in that society served to reinforce belief in God. So belief in God was uncomplicated and universal, and the church took responsibility for everyone and everything. But then something happened. And what happened uh, roughly is that in the 1600s, a new way of acquiring knowledge began in the scientific revolution. People began to emerge out of the religious fog as a new kind of knowledge and a more stable kind of knowledge took hold um, after the scientific revolution. Then, depending on how sophisticated your story is, you might also talk about the Enlightenment. So you think 1600s, uh, birth of scientific method. 1700s, the Enlightenment with a new epistemology uh, applied where you took some of what was given to us in science and applied that beyond science uh, to morality and society and community. So road testing uh, the epistemological advances of science um, beyond the confines of science. Then in the 1800s, 1859, is it? Darwin's Origin of Species. Anyone know the date? Probably 56. Anyway, 1850s, uh, Darwin publishes The Origin of Species. And with the publication, this is the story, with the publication of The Origin of Species, uh, the claim that humans occupy a unique place, God-given place in the world, crumbles, and that one last bastion of, uh, of Christian thinking uh, falls apart. And then the 20th century brings modernity, democracy, free markets, and technology. And once you've got modernity being shipped to the world, once you're turning on light switches and voting for governments and participating by trade and commerce, uh, well, no hard feelings, but religion has just got to uh, decline. So Christianity, I think, in this story is the once great kind of prize fighter um, that's just done round after round for 500 years in the ring with a more worthy opponent. And so we get to 2019, and Christianity is still here, but it's kind of staggering and falling over, and we all secretly know um, that it's on its way out because it's just sustained uh, too many uh, blows against all its claims and all its space. So it will either um, topple over entirely and the future will be entirely secular, uh, kind of a linear progression, or at the very least it will recede to the margins of society or to marginal people uh, who have a continued use for religion at the level of uh, its therapeutic power, um, being able to speak into situations where poverty or mental health or whatever have made life difficult for people. Um, I think that that story, or something like it, is the story that most Westerners carry in their head uh, that accounts for our current uh, moment in our secular culture. A, a story of uh, Christianity meeting opponents that were too powerful for it, and, and Christianity and religion slowly receding um, from the stage. I think that's the story we, we are told and we tell ourselves. That's certainly the story, for example, in the New Atheism. If you read uh, Christopher Hitchens' uh, God is Not Great, uh, um, Richard Dawkins' uh, The God Delusion, Sam Harris, that, that is the story. Uh, that's not even argued for, but argued from. Um, that that's, that's what has happened, and you feel in, in Richard Dawkins' God Delusion uh, that sense of frustration that the great prize fighter hasn't toppled yet. What, why is he still standing He's had so many death blows. Uh, why, why, is, um, why is he still in, in the ring? Um, two things about that story that I think shape us. The first one is to say it functions as a story. 
Um, so it comes to us, and the reason we so many of us uh, intuitively hold it in our heads is because it, it works as a story. Once X, now Y because Z. Uh, used to be religious, a, a powerful enemy came along, and now religion um, has been uh, been defeated, uh, or at least is on its on its way out. You see that storytelling power in the 2016 census. Anyone remember this 2016 census? You have the um, uh, the Humanist Society, or, or maybe it's the Atheist Society, <laughs> runs a campaign, uh, which I think is a perfectly good faith campaign, to say, hey guys, if you are not religious, tick no religion, right? That, that They just want better data and concern that if you have an inflated view of how, you know, if the government thinks that everyone who ticks C of E or whatever, is, is absolutely like Taliban level committed <laughs> to that organisation, then you'll make, make decisions that maybe you, you need better data. So I'm not criticising that um, campaign at all. Um, but do you remember their slogan for the campaign? So again, think about the Donald Trump thing. Uh, posters all over the place that say, not religious anymore, question mark. And again, if you say, if the, if the poster just said not religious, Tick, not religious question mark, tick, you know, no religion. Um, that's, that's an information campaign. But not religious anymore is storytelling. Might be true, might be untrue, but it's a story. Because you read a sign that says not religious anymore, and you don't, you, see, you read a sign that says not religious, and you think, is that relevant to me, yes or no? Thank you very much. Not religious anymore. Now suddenly everyone's included in that story. You just think, what, are people bailing on this? Is this what, what happened? And, and I think that absolutely, just by that one word, speaks into that widely assumed story uh, that Christianity has declined for a known enemy that we will uncontroversially name as science and its heirs and successors and, and, and away we go. So it functions as a story. It draws people into that story as, a, um, as the possibility that you are on a ship that has sailed. I know that is how that metaphor is supposed to work. Uh, that train has sailed, as Austin Powers explains <laughs> it. Um, uh, it makes you think, oh wow, wow, are a lot of people bailing on this, what am I still doing hanging on to this not religious uh, anymore? That story doesn't dictate how you respond to it, because you can spin that story in one or two ways. So if it says not religious anymore, if you're religious, you might look at that and think, yes, yeah, stupid society, it's not religious anymore, and that's why everyone's so immoral, and uh, why there's like, um, I don't know, like Game of Thrones is so popular, and why people are so mean, and and nasty on Twitter and so on, and that's because people aren't religious anymore, and so that, that could feed into a positive uh, religious spin that we, sh- we need religion back again, or it could fit into a more secular spin to say, not, religion, not religious anymore, guys, get on board. Uh, this, uh, we're, ready to, we're ready to move forward. There's a few stragglers, um, but the, uh, the, uh, the tide is going uh, our way. So you can hold that story either as a religious person or a non-religious person. My point is that it's a, uh, it's a story. And then secondly, so it functions as a story rather than just mere information. And secondly, and this comes from Charles uh, Taylor, it functions as a subtraction story. So the story that the West is becoming secular told as a story that people aren't religious anymore, uh, people are, are moving out of religious commitment, is told, and this is Charles Taylor's great gift to our thinking in this area, as a subtraction story. That is, what, what has happened from here to here, or if you're Benedict or some other people, from there to there, is that a, a kind of a vacuum cleaner 
that that is then you can invent this thing, but it, it only picks up religious articles. It doesn't. It leaves other stuff on the ground. A vacuum cleaner has come through our culture and vacuumed up as much religion as possible. And so it's vacuumed up um, the plausibility of belief in God. It's vacuumed up church attendance. It's vacuumed up liturgy. It's vacuumed up sacraments. It's vacuumed up religious reasoning and and so on. It's, it's vacuumed up this stuff and it's made it more like Thanos. That it. You just think, <laughs> why is that? And you think, how come that character's gone and that character's gone, but not that character and that character? Remember before you'd seen Endgame? And you're like, what is the, what's the pattern here? And you kind of geek out on, um, is there any rhyme or reason? And the rhyme or reason in this story is that it was religious. That the thing that got vacuumed up is in things that can't be substantiated except by religious uh, reasoning and, and discourse. And so, and to maybe overuse the metaphor a bit, like any vacuum cleaner, there's points you can't get to, you can't get under the fridge and you can't get, there's points where the dirt just won't come out of the thing. But basically, you've done a kind of Dyson-level job of, <laughs> um, of removing religion. And the flip side of that is that what you're left with here is just our culture minus the religion. And so this gets to be not an alternative, but just our culture with the crazy vacuumed out of it. And that's why the story is so powerful, because the story then gives secular space, secular reasoning, secular belief and behaviour and so on, this privileged position of not having to account for itself or defend itself, it gets to be us minus the crazy, which is an incredibly powerful position. You know, Foucault would love that, um, that you don't have to account for yourself or argue for your place, you just get to be... Uh, what's left when the crazy stuff has gone. That's the story I think we carry, that's the power of it, that it works as a story and that it allows uh, secularism and secularity to not have to account for itself as in any way kind of contingent uh, or whatever. And my question, the question I want to ask of you uh, this morning is, is how, how plausible is that story? How, how true is it? How, how plausible is it? How evidence-based is it that... that what we have is a society of receding religion and therefore an increasingly rational basis on which to um, uh, advance and found a culture. And I think I've got there that there are definitely flaws in the glass. Um, if you take that common sense story and try to apply it to the last 500 years, there's all sorts of points where you think, wait a minute, I don't think that if that story was true, then that wouldn't be as that story predicts it to have, have been. I'll just give you three, there's like tons, tons of this. Uh, the first one to ask uh, is, um, part of that story relies on there being a golden age of faith, an age in which religion was universal and ubiquitous and, and uncomplicated. And first one to ask is, how true is that? Like, let's just go back and work out, how true is it um, that, the, uh, that medieval Europe was just this, this kind of wall-to-wall -wall piety and everyone believed uh, in an uncomplicated way uh, in, in God. And uh, there are some serious questions around that. Um, uh, so, for example, the Lateran Council in 1250 dictates, uh, dictates to good Catholics that they have to start going to Holy Communion once a year. 
It, what is the problem to which that is the solution? That, that guys, we've really got to lift our game. So once a year around Easter, you really want to be uh, present at the Eucharist. Um, the priest, uh, that you know, you had this idea that there's priests everywhere. The, the, the priests, have got a lot of um, evidence to say that uh, they were very poorly educated, that they didn't actually know Latin, that they'd often marked it. You know how like you kind of. There's that vaguely racist thing where you impersonate how other people's languages sound when you don't know what they actually mean. Has anyone ever heard English impersonated? Yeah. I did it once. It sound, I had some friends who didn't, uh, in Indonesia, I asked them to impersonate an English speaker. And it kind of sounds like the chef from the Muppets. And a lot of these priests were like, uh, they were kind of mumbling, not even Latin, but things that sounded a bit like Latin, like things that had that kind of Latinate uh, kind of vibe to them. Um, here's some descriptions from the 1500s. Uh, this is a report from a, a, a bishop, and I quote, uh, members of the population jostled for pews, nudged their neighbours, hawked, this is in church, hawked and spat, knitted, made coarse remarks, told coarse jokes, fell asleep, and even let off guns. <laughs> church records tell of a man in Cambridgeshire who uh, was charged with misbehaving in church in 1598 after his most loathsome farting, striking, <laughs> and scoffing speeches, which rejolted, resulted in the rejoicing of the congregation. <laughs> um, I don't think there's even like a youth group in Sydney that would afford that sort of behaviour. Um, but it starts to break open the idea of this kind of hegemonically uh, pious uh, situation um, in the apparent golden age of faith. And then the other thing that, that massively shapes the way we think about here is the freak show of the 19th century in Britain. So, so one of the ways that people like uh, Gracie Davies and um, Graham Smith, another scholar, who said, like, you compare the 20th century to the 19th century, is not plain fair, because the 19th century was, uh, well, the, the, 1900, the 1800s were unbelievable. That, that, is, that is peak Christianity in Britain, uh, that, that the, the incredible success of the evangelistic campaigns of the 19th century, uh, from the middle of the 19th century right to the end, so that, so that by the uh, maybe 1901, probably Britain had its highest ever church attendance, compared with all of that, including that. So there's an unbelievably precipitous time. So if you compare our age with, with large swathes of medieval era, um, we, we would talk about them as being quite secular, or at least very not pious. Uh, and of course, if you compare anyone so far with the 19th century, um, you look pretty thin. Um, it's hard to beat uh, those guys. Um, uh, second thing, there's one thing, the question about the golden age of faith. Second thing that doesn't seem to fit with the common uh, story uh, you would expect in the common story if that science is really the driving force that makes religious faith implausible, you would expect to see some sort of correlation between rises in science and declines in Christian faith. That seems a reasonable assumption, right? And yet you go back and the, the data isn't behaving properly. Uh, so, for example, the age of uh, the Enlightenment uh, is also the age of the evangel like evangelicalism as we know it, is born in that era uh, through the revivals in America and in Britain. And the beginning of worldwide evangelization is in its own way a product of and part of Enlightenment culture, which is a very odd thing to be coterminous with a thing that is apparently the, the death knell of that. Um, 
the in the uh, in the Victorian era, the publication of the Origin of Species, uh, if if it had the effect that's often claimed for it, you'd expect to see some correlation. And in fact, church everything goes north after the publication of the Origin of Species for like fifty years. And the, the controversy that we read back into the publication of that book is very different when you actually look at how the book was received and the theory was received at the time. Not uncomplicated, not pretending it was like this kind of unremarkable event, but you just don't have the kind of correlation you'd expect if science was doing um, uh, what people say it would do. Thirdly, on the vacuum theory. The vacuum theory is correct that, that, that we're just left with um, the ethics that rational, reasonable, non-religious people would be left with after religion is, is vacuumed up. Um, I think our ethical framework, uh, it's very hard to argue that that's what it is. That it's been established by sheer uh, rational our society minus, uh, minus religion. There's a cheap move that you could make here, which I don't want to make, which is the cheap move, I think, is to say you can't be good without God. I think that's like empirically false. Like, you know, people who you're not scared of, they're not going to be violent to you. And I think we all know, um, embarrassingly enough, like at least a person who's kind of seems to be better than us and then they don't believe in God. That's an embarrassing fact, but um, seems, to be, uh, seems to be out there. So I don't think our claim is that you can't be good without God. But the other question is that is the good, is the good of secular culture as unreligious uh, as it seems to be or claims to be. So John Gray, an atheist, never tires of pointing this out. Uh, John Gray says this, um, Today's religious believers are more free-thinking, um, not in the quote, but before, more free-thinking than atheists. He says, Driven to the margins of a culture in which science claims authority over all of human knowledge, they, that is, us crazy religious people, um, have to cultivate a capacity for doubt. In contrast, secular believers, held fast by the conventional wisdom of the time, are in the grips of unexamined dogma. Humanism is not science but religion, the post-Christian faith that humans can make a, the world better than any world they have lived in so far. And so John Gray, I don't know if anyone reads him, his kind of whole career is staked on um, pointing out how just kind of outrageously and irrationally Christian someone like Richard Dawkins is that the whole thing is not the thing that you would come from, we descended from the trees, therefore love one another. It's just not the way that scene operates. And uh, another guy, Graham Smith, uh, has written a terrific book arguing that uh, what looks like a debate in our culture between secular and religious people is, is a civil war between two types of Christianity. Um, the, the civil war between a kind of conservative and still religious thing and a non less conservative but still religiously grounded um, uh, Christianity. Or well, Edwin Judge from Macquarie University uh, puts it this way, he said, if you went back in a time machine to ancient Rome, it wouldn't take long before the most self-respecting Newtown resident in a city westerner found out that they were Christian and not classical. <laughs> it, it, it'd take about, take about three days before you thought, whatever I am, I'm not this. Uh, because I don't think the vacuum cleaner has been a successful uh, as it, uh, as it claims. Uh, there's another weird fact here, which I probably fits under the previous point, um, that the the top third, you probably heard maybe atheists point this out, if you divide society up into a third, a third, a third, um, the top third, in terms of education, socioeconomic circumstances, are the most likely to be atheist, right? 
They are the most likely to not believe in God. But guess who are the most likely to be actively religious and in church? Also the top there. So you've got this, you've got this weird thing where you, uh, where if the if the story works, you would expect a correlation between education and a failure to accept religious dogma, and that's not the case. And I think, in fact, what's happening, sociologists would say this, what's happening is that top third, um, that when you're wealthy, uh, you have agency, and people with agency can choose things that people without agency can't. And so in our society, it's still true that if you're an atheist, you've almost certainly chosen that. So you never, you never met anyone, do you, who says, oh, yeah, I was raised atheist. I'm not sure if I really believe it, but we have to go to the youth group and stuff like that. Like, it was a bit cringe sometimes, because how many times can you sing Imagine? And, um, <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I guess I'm still going to stick with that, because Dad would be really upset. But, uh, but I don't know. So no, almost everyone who says they're an atheist, uh, they made a conscious decision almost always to reject something in order to be that. And in our society, almost everyone who gets to church every week is in some sense conscious that they have chosen to be Christian. Because in our culture, neither atheism nor active, engaged Christianity has the wind behind it. And so for both of those, you have to choose. Whereas in previous ages, it is true. I find that very troubling, right? Because I think there's, there's... the sociologist in me finds that really interesting, and then the Jesus person in me says, oh, I reckon Jesus, like, they're, they're, that's his team down there, right? Um, and so I kind of find it annoying. Um, that's good for this part of the argument, but not for my other wider thing of where I think Jesus should be most prevalent. Um, but it seems to me, sociologically at least, uh, that for people on that bottom third of a culture, you really, you really do need a practice of... Um, behaviour and belonging that sustains that belief, whereas really, in some ways, it's the privilege of the top third to be uh, as clear about belief uh, as we are. That's in no way saying that I don't think belief matters down here, um, but for for the bottom third, you really need a, that mutually enforcing world. And, a certain, and in, in a culture where the culture isn't saying to you, why were you at church on Sunday, um, it, it takes a certain amount of agency to make those decisions. Yeah. So they're the reasons I think, some of the many reasons I think the secular uh, or the common, the common sense story doesn't work. Do you want to just pause there and ask questions about that? Basic contention makes sense. Yes? Um, so this is Greg Henderson, um, um, you know, talking about uh, the gospel in, um, in relatively intact indigenous cultures in the Northern Territory. Mm-hmm. They're really in that lower third. Yes. Yeah. So, that, so, so I think that statistic is broken out on um, society, like smaller. That's that that statistic is mainly driven by like large working class um, populations. So in um, uh, so for example, Western Sydney, which is the the strongest, I think it was the strongest no vote on the uh, side, right? So that's a highly religious situation in minority communities. And so minority communities do have, tend to have higher religious affiliation, and so I think those indigenous communities would fit with that, uh, as opposed to those great swathes of um, more indeterminately identified people. Yeah. So Durkheim um, would say, I think there's some problems with this, but 
uh, and a lot of kind of a lot of traditional secularization theorist people who more or less accept the story that we told first would say that in modernity religion can only find a place if it finds a job other than its belief system um, and that's how they would account for those uh, how migrant communities have high religious uh, religious work. Yeah, but I think there's problems with what, that Durkheim thing as well. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Charles Taylor, when he argues against that, so that's a really common thing in sociology to say uh, religion is implausible because science. Uh, so why does it still exist? So it's, it's serving some other function. Uh, Charles Taylor has his whole—he's a Catholic—has uh, um, his whole section where his argument against that is evangelicalism. And he says that evangelical Christianity is so belief-driven and so about uh, what you believe to be true and often doesn't, um, doesn't find itself other jobs beyond proclaiming the gospel and establishing people in faith. And, and he's, he, that's, his, that's an obvious counterfactual to him. Yeah. All right. So... Uh, so we're saying that there's problems with that story and I want to uh, think about a different way of telling the story which will account for where we are a bit better. Um, so Charles Taylor and other scholars have revisited that story to see if a more persuasive story uh, could be told about our secular uh, age. Now Charles Taylor, for example, um, does accept that our age is secular um, uh, in a way that some other people don't. So some other people say uh, Peter, Peter Berger and um, uh, a whole ton of people actually would just say actually let's just forget calling this time secular. I don't think that's... That's not true. Um, Taylor thinks it is, as do I. And he says this, I think this quote's on your outline. For the first time in human history, a purely self-sufficient humanism came to be a widely available option. I mean by this that humanism, accepting no final goals beyond human flourishing, nor any allegiance to anything else beyond this flourishing, and Taylor says, of no previous society was this true. Um, and Taylor thinks that that's true, but he says that he doesn't believe the subtraction story, that it's science, what did it story, he thinks is completely implausible. And uh, he tells a much uh, richer story to say that it's not uh, science as such, or the claims of science as such, but the conditions of belief are shaped by technology and culture and key moments in history has led to a situation where the conditions of belief here, um, the way in which we to believe the default picture that we carry uh, of our world uh, changes so that a self-sufficient humanism becomes a viable option and that belief in God adopts a certain fragility uh, because the conditions of belief uh, are shaped in a way that doesn't reinforce but rather undermines belief in God. So belief in God now is experienced as a thing that you very much decided to do rather than something that feels a natural um, truth about your world. So Taylor, for example, tells this really, it tells this really um, meandering, complicated, interesting story about how um, uh, certain changes in culture and the way nation-states work. Science is part of the story but kind of a minor a minor player, the way nation-states work, uh, the kind of unintended consequences of the Reformation, uh, the Enlightenment doing different work to the work that the traditional story tells it, more to do with the way you frame the world and see the world, uh, and then right up to here. But noticing that right up to here, the West is still very religious, and in the, 19, uh, in the Victorian era, 1900s, uh, it becomes maybe as observant as it has ever been. And then uh, the Bloomsbury set someone talked about, 
the boobs we set represent basically what is kind of mainstream uh, sexual and moral ethics now. But at the time of Bloomsbury, you can't. You can only do that if you're rich. But you can't live that lifestyle unless you're rich, because Bloomsbury is driven by choice and freedom, and uh, only incredibly rich people have choice and freedom. But then when you have uh, post-war um, post-war wealth and birth control, suddenly everyone can live like Bloomsbury um, without the consequences that only rich people could, could avoid. And so Ta Taylor says that really in the 1960s you have a sudden spike uh, to a situation where uh, uh, secularism is not only possible but in some ways the default, default option. Yeah. Do you want to ask anything about that? He talks about Taylor's answer is to say that this we now live in a thing that he calls an imminent frame. We live in a way of framing the world, a way of imagining the world, where we frame things imminently uh, as opposed to transcendently. And so the frame is like that. And if you are a person who believes in transcendent realities like God, then you're having to step outside the frame to pull something in that's not framed into the picture. It's got quite a vivid, um, vivid way of, of thinking about it a bit. So I was going to use it. I had a PowerPoint. I only had a few PowerPoint things. Um, but I think, have you got a chart there? I'll get, you can fill in the chart if you want. So I think the traditional story um, on the, the first column, the traditional story is that science is the foundation of secularism, which led to secularisation and a decline in the influence of belief in God and religious institutions. And then the future of faith is massive decline. That's the, that's the traditional secular story. And what Charles Taylor does is accepts the middle tier. So he says the current experience, he also agrees, is what you would call secularism or a secular age. But he says what's driving it is cultural changes that, that led to an imminent frame. And what the future of faith will be is what he calls a nova effect. So, you know, Nova's is like, you know, the exploding stars or whatever. I hope, I hope that's it. There's a high risk that someone here will know this. <laughs> <laughs> you could normally say that and it's like, you know, everyone's like, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but let's at least pretend that, that, that Nova effects are this kind of like the, the supernova is like a massive exploding star. And so Taylor says the story actually is science is not the problem. Actually, the imminent frame, which is a cultural artifact, is, is the problem has led to a decline in religious belief, but the future is not uh, the eradication of religion, but a nova effect where uh, religious expression of religious communities will become more and more plural, um, and there will be good and bad expressions uh, of belief in transcendent realities and lives lived with that. Um, but he would say that uh, transcendent belief is not going anywhere anytime. So, yeah. Sorry. Um, I've got one more section to take you through, so I'll just pause there and see if we've grasped our journey so far. Rory, does that mean society becomes more secular? Religion doesn't decline, it actually, there's more religion in society, it's just more pluralised than among uh, monotone. Yeah, that's right, yes, so he'd say that, that no reference to say religion will become more plural um, and it will. In good and bad ways, it will seek to probably recolonise the secular real estate. Um, so, uh, radical Islam would be an example of that. And in, in a different way, the religious right in America would be another example of seeking to recolonise that, uh, that that world. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, I don't know if it's happened later, but you mentioned 
in the floors of the glass, the, the third point was that like our ethical framework, modern ethical framework, is quite religious. Yes. What's going to tie that down, though? Like what's going to structure that religious framework and maintain it? Or is it just going to be this... Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, it's one of, I mean, that's one of the problems that, they, that people like John Gray and stuff, uh, that, that's what they're arguing to say, that guys, the thing, the thing that you think is the self-evident ethic we can adopt without Christianity is that in which, in which laboratory was human rights first witnessed? Like, what, in, yeah, which, which forest did we first discover the equal dignity of men and women before God? They're, they're completely religious points of view. And... Um, Humans are really good at imagination, so it might be that we can just do that and we can just adopt a legal fiction for its utility. Um, but John Gray wrote this fantastic but terrifying book called um, uh, Is It Humans and Other Animals? Or Straw Dogs. Uh, and he just, he, he just does this absolutely clinical take of saying, guys, if he says uh, Darwin, what Darwin did do is gave us the great gift of the possibility of defeating the great Christian heresy, which is the unique dignity of humans. And he says, what we haven't done in our society is really taken that seriously. And, he, and so he thinks that the new atheists are like amateur hour, kindergarten stuff, because it's just this crazy, like, like a Mac and a PC trying to talk in 1986. Like, they just, it's, they just put things together that don't can't operate together. And so, you know, one of the possibilities, either we will kind of continue to, to imagine stuff um, or see its utility, uh, or maybe maybe eventually those, those things will recede. So you could make that argument that as regards um, unborn babies and maybe um, uh, refugees, maybe there's points there where, where some more coherently Darwinian take on things is being put forward. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was just going to say, I know in psychology there's a lot of research trying to, like, find a biological basis for things like altruism and you can try and explain away with science a lot of the ethics but so I think if when you read it it's a really weak attempt to everyone like how does that necessarily mean that like but yeah science is trying to get into that and yeah. it as its own but it's pretty weak at doing it. Right, yes. And it is also it's just sort of curious, even even if that's what was enormously successful, whose idea was it to look for that? Like, what was the... Before you went into the lab, who decided that altruism was the thing we want to look for and establish? It's just this... Um, yeah, it's this kind of, like... Uh, there's an a absurdity, absurdity to it all, yeah. Which, again, not saying... I think it's a really bad argument to say um, non-Christians can't be good. Um, I think what Christianity can do is... I think we can provide a better account for the good that we do see. Um, and I think that on the long term, while any individual person might be good or bad or better than me or worse than me, um, the world is affected by by the the values and the whether you can tie things down to something substantial or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, on the idea that like the religion religion in secular society becomes more and more plural and is that also that because the default is secular, are they becoming more radical? Like you think of like the radical right and left, or is it just that they appear more radical because of in contrast to the default? Like what is it like in compensation for standing out from the default in terms of what you were saying, Gray was saying? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. So that seems, um, I feel like intuitively that seems right that you 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 radicalize relative to the threat that you feel, um, or or so there's a kind of a. Um, there's a kind of a uh, 
I'm trying to think of the right word. I was going to say cloning, but that prejudices it. But there's a there's a, the dynamic that comes from the idea that you're losing ground and you need to recapture it, and maybe the radical, maybe right-wing politics, and maybe Islamic extremism, <coughs> whatever re reflects that. Or you can have a a market mechanism where uh, what Karl Marx calls the uh, the fetish of differentiation, that you're constantly wanting to differentiate yourself. And so you see that in churches and Bible colleges and stuff like that, where everyone's <laughs> trying to make out that we're like wildly different in the product that we offer and the situation that you are. And you say, oh, I don't know how different it really is. Um, so that might be a that might be an effect in a market society that you um, differentiate yourself um, because you're competing for limited resources or something. Yeah. But is that what, even what you were... Yeah, I think so. I was thinking about how, like, Christianity in the Victorian era was the default, and so it didn't appear radical, whereas now, if you talk to, like, other people at the university or whatever, the idea that you would be an actually practicing Christian appears quite... That seems like you're a radical Christian, yes. you're not just a... And so it's that level of, like, ra is it radical because we're trying to differentiate ourselves from the default, or is it just it appears radical because the default is so different now? Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, that, that would be a definitely a plausible alternative to say that actually these are really normal, uh, very conventional Christian ideas that we hold and conventional Christian practices, and they suddenly, you know, I feel like that's probably true on, on sexual ethics, for example, that you kind of, it feels like a game of um, musical chairs where suddenly someone moves 60% of the chairs out, and you're like, whoa, and, you know, people who even, so quick that even like maybe a decade ago became Christian, where... Um, Christian sexual ethics were 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 a, a lot less remarkable than they are now, and I think it's a really big discipleship challenge because a lot of people who came to Christ under Situation A are now holding a situation, holding a belief uh, that doesn't have that that backing. And so one of the things I think we'll get to this afternoon is that though um, that some of the some of the ways I'm not like full Benedict option or anything, but I think some of the ways in which uh, minority groups sustain belief, I think are, are in, there's important things in there for how we will sustain and nurture Christian belief and discipleship um, over, over the next few decades or whatever. Um, because I think you have a... In fact, I'll do this now because maybe we won't get there. Has anyone got a... You haven't got a pen for that, have you? Does anyone, anyone walk around with a whiteboard there? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Is that what, what Myers-Briggs personality are you? Uh, faculty of teaching. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I've got more as well. My, um... My rough take on this is that what you had, um... What you had in Australia to a uh, to a certain point, maybe uh, let's say to the, uh, to the 80s, from 1901 to 1980s, uh, you had a culture that Les Murray, you know, the great Australian poet, he said, uh, Australia is roughly Christian. Um, it's a great Les Murray kind of phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Which is to say, it's, uh, it's a roughly Christian operation. I think 1901, there are... Um, I think it's something like 94% of people identify as Christian in the in the census. Um, by the 1950s, that's gone down to something pretty modest, like it's eight, in the 80% or whatever. Like it's, so if you're marking the decline on a graph, it's a very gentle, um, you know, noticeable, but very gentle decline from 1900 to 1950. And then you get to a point in the 1960s where you, you start to see some, some action uh, on that. 
And then 2016 census is Australia is 61% identifying as Christian, uh, 40%, whatever, it's kind of a 60-40 thing. Then the McCrindle report comes out and it's more like 58%. And so there's, there's some reason to think that probably by the next census, it'll be identifying as Christian will be 50 or a minority, right? Now, the interesting thing about that, do you want the door, is that door closed, all right? I'm not going to stop that. Um, the interesting thing about that is that you look at that and you think, oh, so the church, everyone was in church in 1900 and no one's in Not at all. So church attendance is, is uncorrelated with Christian identity. So um, 1900 is hopeless. Uh, 19, well, especially uh, from World War One to the post-World War Two, terrible time for the churches, very poor church attendance, very, on, on almost any KPI that would matter to anyone in this room, um, <laughs> sending missionaries like uh, people converted, some of that really thin. And then after 1945 to 1963, the church, church attendance goes through the roof. And people are in Sunday schools, and that's when. So when Billy Graham comes in 1959, that everyone thinks of that as, uh, oh man, Billy Graham came to something great, and he did. But that was at the end of a decade where everything was going north. And so if we were getting, if we had an EU conference in 1953, we'd be agonising over we've got to build bigger churches. We've got to, how are we going to accommodate all this growth in this post-war kind of revival? Is that right? Well, the EU arguably is a time in the early 1950s, where East Dudley Ford in the 1951 mission, where they saw hundreds converted. Right. And they, they would say the EU had several hundred in its membership. And in terms of impact on the university, it was the greatest proportional impact of student life. Yes. Is the early 50s, not the late 50s. Yeah, absolutely. And if anything, by the early to mid-60s, the EU has almost fallen off a cliff. Yeah, yeah, so that's really, right. I mean, that's... Student work turned over very quickly, so the yeah. swings are much um, more acute, I think. Right, but it's really important because if, if you're understanding Australian history, uh, it's, I think there's some misdirection in the Billy Graham crusade in what was happening in the lead up to the Billy Graham crusade. That makes sense. And so we said that exactly because it conforms to my um, pre uh, assumptions, I accept what you said. <laughs> <laughs> it's also interesting, from memory, um, they couldn't get Billy Graham to come earlier. They were trying to get him to come in the earlier 50s as a means of trying to stimulate the growth. Right. And for various reasons, he resisted. Okay, there you go. Probably in the Lord's providence. Yeah. And then came at the end of that. And at the end of that. It's a really interesting yeah. story. Now, the interesting one we're talking about lunch. 1963 is this pretty hard date that fits almost everywhere for this point where everything goes south across Anglosphere, so not just in, in Australia. So you can speculate on why um, 1963 is that date. Um, but I think what happens here in Australia in this zone, to be a Christian is to be an intensive form of a society that's roughly Christian. So society is roughly Christian, and you're an intense form. And so Christians are annoying because you're calling the society to the thing that they kind of sort of think, maybe if I wasn't as like dodgy, I would be anyway. So you listen to Billy Graham's sermons, and each of them in their own way, his basic message is, you're not Christian enough. Mm. So why it's all... Born Again's mentioned is it two and a half times in the Testament. He mentions it all the time. Why? Because if you're here, and, 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 and Billy Graham says, hey, is everyone here Christian? You're like, yeah, we're good, we're good, we're good. You know, 82% of us Christian. He says, no, you, you must be born again. You're like, what, what do you mean? 
And so you're an intensive form of the culture, and that expands or contracts as to whether the culture is up for taking its faith seriously, but it's the faith of the thing. And whereas I think now what's happened is, in a really decisive way, in our lifetime, we've moved out of the culture, and so we in no way represent the culture's better instincts or the culture's better the culture's more intense form. And so people are really annoyed at us, not because we're calling them back to what they know they should do, but because we represent, in many ways, an alternative to what, uh, 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 what they're saying. And so I think the dynamics, what I, what I do want to say is the dynamics for being this are very different from the dynamics for being this. Um, because here, and I don't want to overestimate that there's a lot of mythology about the 50s, but I think, I think it is true to say that once someone has become a Christian there, you can in some way subcontract a fair bit of your sexual ethics and, um, uh, and behavioural ethics and stuff out to the wider culture. Um, whereas here, you can't do any kind of that subcontracting, um, and so you need uh, more deliberately formative communities. Um, and again, I'm not trying to raise the, uh, the same-sex marriage issue as an issue, but as an example to say that how was it that Western Sydney was so confident to vote against it? Where before that vote, everyone was like, yeah, rural Queensland and WA, they'll be against it, but Sydney and Melbourne will be banging up for it. And that's not what happened. And I think sociologically, um, Lebanese Muslims, Lebanese Catholics, whatever, they, 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 no one's thinking this. Oh, if I, was, if I was religious, I'd be Lebanese Muslim. Um, so what they lack in in consensus they make up for in formation. That there's a there's a thickness to that community. So that if you're in that community, you can have it in your take on same sex marriage is entirely plausible because you have this thick community that mutually reinforces um, what you believe. So my guess is, and I think there's broken and and unbroken ways of doing this, uh, but my guess is that our communities will become much thicker and our much more um, deliberate and uh, in the way we make sure it, it's it's plausible to be Christian. Yeah. All right, yes? Um, I was wondering, are the factors, the cultural factors that Taylor said led to secularism, are they the same factors that will lead to the Nobel effect? Or are they just... Yeah, so he, so Taylor's thing roughly is that you have the, you have a Nobel effect um, in especially the, to an extent in the Reformation, but especially in the 19th century, where in England, and especially in America, it's now possible to be, uh, you know, Baptist, Anglican, uh, Church of Christ, you know, the, that's when the Mormons start, and all that kind of thing you have. And America's got this really weird dynamic, because America's always the exception to the secularization story, right? Because it's like super religious and super um, modern, modern and stuff. And, um, and he says you have, a, you have a Nova effect kind of in the... 19th century, and then he argues for like a supernova after the 60s. So it's like, oh, lots more options there, and then this kind of explosive um, scenario after that. Yeah. Um, so for and so I think he his basic take on the 60s is that uh, uh, two technologies, broad uh, using technology the way sociologists use that word, which are the pill and ubiquitous wealth, um, make it possible for everyone to be volumes free. And for blue to be normal, and then that kind of leads to this like supernova options here. Cool. All right, let's hit the home straight. Um, the last thing I want to do with you in this session um, is to talk to you about you.
So uh, I want to give you a brief history of you, and uh, I haven't done that by looking at your Facebook uh, feed, or I did uh, ask your mum for a few photos, but then the, um, the thing didn't work, so we're going to do it. No, I haven't done anything creepy. Um, but I wanted to uh, paint a picture of, uh, we, I guess we've thought about the external things, like the things in our society that shape our current moment. I want to think, as we transition in the afternoon, to think about what are the things that have shaped you and I and the way we are as, as operators in our, in our culture. So I want to give you uh, a brief history of you. And to do that, I need to talk about the, the, the States of Imagination, the 1519 version of you versus the 2019 version of you. So that's the imaginative exercise to imagine you. Everything's the same, genetically and physically, except that you're born um, 500 years ago. Okay, so you 500 years ago. Uh, you would have been born into a family of, uh, sorry. Uh, you would have been born into a family in a context where maybe you were one of eight, 10, 12 other children. Um, several of whom would have died before their fifth uh, birthday. You would have known with 99% accuracy what your job would be because it was shaped by two immovable things, what your family did and what your gender was. Uh, family, uh, if your dad, if you were a male and your dad was a farmer, 99% accuracy, you were going to be a farmer. If you were female and your mum was married to a farmer, you were going to grow up to be married to a farmer. So gender and family dictated what you did. And so you, 15, 19, you, would have almost never had the conversation, so what are you going to do when you grow up? This would have been an absolute non-starter at any social event, uh, the least interesting thing you could ask anyone. Uh, indeed, 15, 19, you, uh, you only had the tiniest say in most of the major factors in your life. Where you lived, what you did, to whom you were married, all of those were more or less decided for you. So no one gave graduation ceremony saying, guys, you've just got to follow your dreams. Um, no one said to you, the main thing is that you do what you want to do. That wasn't even uh, on the table. And so most of the wisdom that was available to you, the advice from your elders, the sermons you heard, the songs that you sang, the poems that you learned, the advice that you got, most of it was not about how to navigate your life and make good choices, but about how to cope with the circumstances that were allotted to you. Uh, the world you lived in was an enchanted world where there were spirits and demons and forces that were beyond your control. If it was a thunderstorm, the first thing you thought of might be whether God was angry with you or not. Uh, my life your life was communal. You would have had next to no privacy. I might not have even been a word in English at that time. Um, next to no time alone. Uh, next to no time with people beyond the people that you were going to know for the rest of your life. So that's a world of massive and thick community. And to be fair, almost stifling. A little bit too thick community. Um, it was a world with a surplus of meaning. A lot of your problems came from the fact that everything meant something that every failure of the crops, every thunderstorm, every um, natural event meant something and it would be ascribed meaning, and it was a world where you had very little freedom. Uh, a world in which um, you had very few choices in life, all the, most, all the big decisions were made for you, and almost none of your identity came from decisions that you made. Almost none of who you understood yourself to be 
pain because of things that you had decided to do? Uh, all the things that went into who you were, the answer to the question who you were, that you were a Christian, that the states in England, that's where my guys are from, that you're English, that you're a farmer, married to someone called Guinevere, and um, <laughs> th- these are the answers to who you were, and they were basically assigned to you. So fast forward to 2019. What are you like now? So you probably, from a family of one, two, maybe three siblings, <laughs> it's possible that there are people in this room who have never seen a dead body, uh, it's possible that there are people in this room who have never lost someone that's close to them. The chances that you will do with your life what your parents did with their lives are small and your whole education has persuaded you that you should pursue your dreams and go after that which is meaningful to you. And even your parents, especially if they're white parents, will be considered good parents if they've encouraged you not to do what they did, but to find out who you are and follow your dreams. And they, if they're white, will be considered bad parents if they've placed any constriction on you to follow in the family tradition and do um, what you were, your family's supposed to do. Gender is much less relevant to your job description, uh, to your job decisions, and you will have had the conversation so many times that it makes you want to vomit. So we will really grow up. Uh, Almost all the major decisions in your life, where you live, uh, where you study, what you do, who you will marry, what, if any, faith you will follow, are your decisions and therefore your responsibility. And every movie, every book, every song is about navigating choice and almost nothing you've ever heard is about coping with allotted circumstances. You see this in pastoral ministry where people come in adult life to the first thing in their life that won't be moved by a different choice and there's like zero resources uh, for coping with a long-term difficult marriage, a chronic illness or whatever. No one knows what to say because every Disney film is about I believe I can fly and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, The world you look at is a disenchanted world. So even if you believe, and I think probably all of us do, that there are spirits and demons, you could go days or weeks or even a lifetime without being able to identify a single event in your life that you think was caused by them. It's very likely that at some stage you will live alone, that you will have and strongly feel a need for privacy, and that you will know what it's like to feel lonely. Uh, We live in a world of very thin community, a world where vast swathes of things that happen mean nothing, and it wouldn't even occur to us to assign meaning to them. But you have incredible freedom. So untold, never before in the history of the human race, freak show levels of freedom... Uh, But freedom understood as choice. Uh, We mean by freedom the freedom to choose, and that means almost all of your identity comes from decisions that you made and were conscious of making. And so what's it like to be that person? Well, I could ask you, but I'll have a shot. Um, You're almost never afraid uh, in the sense of afraid of demons and time. That's why we watch scary movies, because it's kind of fun to feel something that our daily life doesn't distribute to us. Almost never <laughs> afraid. It would make, Charles Taylor uses that example. He says it would make no sense to say to someone in the 1500s, hey, let's watch a scary movie about demons. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're um, almost never afraid, but you're constantly anxious. 
because you know that you're free to choose you know that you're free to choose whomever you hang out with and you could invent yourself a dozen times over in your life which means that you know what it means to feel lonely you probably don't feel as much guilt as your 1500s version of yourself but you sometimes wonder whether anything means anything at all and you bear a burden uh, for who you are, the 1500s, you wouldn't even recognise. Because the flip side of choice is that if it was your choice, then it's also your responsibility. And so things like self-medication, mental illness and so on, which had this kind of weirdly celebrated position in 1500s where to be uh, chronically ill or mentally unstable was often framed as having in some unique way contact with the divine or a participation in the suffering of Christ is now seen as something that you largely have to take responsibility for overcoming. And so to fill out the form uh, there, uh, your family in 1500s was large, now it's small, death was present, now it's hidden, your community was tight, so no suffocating, now it's loose and thin. Your work and role, your work and role, you you walked into... Um, you walked into a pre-existent role and your job in life was to faithfully fulfil the role that was assigned to you. Whereas in 2019, you create that role as a platform of self-expression and self-fulfilment. 1500s, your life choices were minimal and often trivial. The things that you did get to choose were things that didn't matter. Whereas your life choices now are massive often overwhelming and invested with a one roll of the dice, if I get this wrong, I'm in trouble. Uh, The natural world was enchanted. Uh, It was a place of beauty, but also a place of terror that you had to treat with honour because it was in some ways a threat to you. Where now uh, the world is disenchanted, it is a source of spiritual significance and we are a threat to it. So in 1500s you honour the natural world, because you're scared of it, now you uh, feel sorry for the natural world and try to care for it. Uh, Moral reasoning was objective. Uh, What are humans for and how do I serve that ends? Whereas in 2019, it is subjective. We discover our own freedom and the most serious moral responsibility that befalls any of us is to not stand in the way of someone else's ability to self-express. The negative emotions you knew in 1590 were fear and guilt. Now they are loneliness and meaninglessness. Uh, The source of your identity in 1519 was the place that was ascribed to me. But in 2019, the source of your identity is an inner authentic self uh, whom it is your moral duty to express. Uh, It's what Charles Taylor calls a buffered self pursuing expressive individualism in an age of authenticity. All right, I think we've done our time, so we'll pause it there, and then this afternoon we're gonna think a bit about uh, what it means to be that person, and particularly uh, how to uh, think about work and research in the context of a secular age. All right, thanks. Okay. Um,